Welcome to NavChat, the show for the New Zealand orienteering and navigation sports community. Morning, Tom. How's it going? Morning, Gene. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. What's been happening with you this month, orienteering-wise? This month has been good for orienteering. It was fairly quiet in February, but things have started up again. Uh, we've had, I've had a few races and my training has been going good, actually. I'm, I've got a lot, some niggles that I'm managing, but I've been able to keep up training and my fitness is coming along quite well. So I'm looking forward to uh, a race this weekend. And as you'll see, the season is really starting now. So I'm really looking forward to trying to put my fitness to use in some longer races, especially. So you would have done the turbo sprint weekends in Manawatu. And did you race at Castle Apo? Yep. And I, I also raced there. And yeah, we've got uh, another null race uh, this weekend. And Nationals is on the horizon. Uh, nice. Also, yeah, things, so, are really, yeah. things are really kicking off. And great that lots of these events are still going ahead. Mm-hmm. Nice change from recent years. Yeah. But the big event for us over the past month has been you doing God's Own with Ataraxia Macpack. Congratulations on your third place. That was amazing. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was a um, it's a tough old week of racing, uh, but yeah, great to have a finally got cracked to the podium. It was yeah, it was cool. Yeah, yeah, we were all really impressed. Was that the longest time you've been out on course? Yeah, yep. Wanaka back in two thousand and fifteen, or th- yeah, two thousand and fifteen. I think we were out for six, just over six days. Whereas this time we were we were pushing seven yeah. for the race um Mm. and i think we're a lot faster than we were back in monica as well yes that's really saying something and you can look at the time for avea who won again uh that was certainly the longest winning time of the god zone Mm, yeah there were some there's some definite points and especially in stage three which was the really long haul from uh the cascade river over to glenorchy where you thinking about the rest of the course was a bit dangerous because you just had so far left to go Mm. And like dangerous mentally, like dangerous just, mentally, yeah, yeah. You can really get yourself into it's a it's a definite one of those events. I think where you need to you need to have in the back of your mind that it's a long race, but to help yourself psychologically, you also have to just think what's the next place we're trying to get to. Let's get to this next big milestone. Let's just think about finishing this stage. You can allow yourself. You need to obviously be tactical and think about what's to come, but the minute to minute thoughts. It's mm-hmm. good to not get too caught up in how far is left yeah some good words there but at the far opposite end of the spectrum uh, the guest that i've uh, brought on for this week is uh we're doing much shorter races than, than yeah, God's indeed. so indeed we're kind of different. going from one this this month we're kind of talking a wee bit about event racing but we're also talking a wee bit about sprint orienteering and you've got one of new zealand's fastest young sprint talents uh penelope salmon on the interview Shall we have a listen? Yeah, let's see what, see what she has to say. Hello. Hey, Penelope, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Cool. Yeah, I'm well. Thanks for coming on NavChat. No worries. So congrats on your win at the Knockout Sprint stuff, uh, the Knockout Sprint weekend, and at the Knockout Sprint uh, day, specifically uh, a couple of weeks back. Was that your first time doing Knockout Sprints? No, it was my second. My first time was doing the Lonely Mountain Sprints about a year ago. 
you feel like you improved at knockout sprint between those during those times? Um, I feel like I haven't had enough practice to say I've improved at knockout sprint yeah. between those two times, but they both went pretty well. So yeah, it was good. Yeah. Yeah, that was my first time uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, doing oh, really? it. So I, I was quite nervous going into it, just not knowing what to expect doing the, the head-to-head uh, style stuff. Do you feel a lot of pressure when you're starting head-to-head with other people? No, I really enjoy it. I, I think it's like one of my favorite things, actually, doing the head-to-head because it makes you really push yourself to go faster. Um, yeah, I think it's quite exciting. I feel, yeah, I find it really exciting, actually, just um, starting the start line with everyone. And if you know, and you kind of can feel where you are compared to everyone when you come to like the, the same control ones, if you've got butterfly loops and things. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's quite good. Um, yeah, I really enjoy it. And you did really well. Congrats to you too. I think you came second, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Thanks. Yeah, I was pretty um, relieved actually. I got quite close to Joe, but um, he's definitely yeah, too yeah. fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed that. I feel a bit more pressure and there's kind of this like cloud of uh, a little bit of anxiety that's just uh, distracting me a little bit from uh, some of the navigation. Whereas if I do a mass start in the forest, I feel like I have a lot more time because the race is a lot longer. There's more time for things to play out. And so I'm a bit more relaxed. Is that something you've noticed or you feel like you have full mental bandwidth even for the fast sprints? I feel like with the mass start in the forest, that's usually in the sense of a relay. So I feel a lot more pressure because I'm thinking about my team and every single leg, you know, I feel like there's a lot more chance for mistakes in the forest. Whereas in the um, knockout sprint, it's usually not too, there's not too much room for error. And so um, even though I made a couple of little mistakes, even on that last one, like you can see that I could see Lizzie was, you know, where she was. So I can like sprint as hard as I can to catch up. So it gives you a lot of motivation, I think, mostly. Um, yeah, I, I didn't find it too hard to stay focused because it's always, it's everything's going so fast. So you really have to make sure that you're keeping track yeah. and planning ahead. Yeah. Cool. So let's zoom out a little bit. Where are you with your uh, studies and um, career and other things outside of orienteering? Yeah, well, I finished school last year. Um, it was like end of COVID year, though, so it was not such a good, uh, not so much fun. Um, we had to organize our own graduation and everything. But um, then I'm just having about well, six months off before I go to university in the US in August. At the end of August, I start university there. And so I'm just, I'm meant to be. Uh, starting to revise my calculus because I haven't done that in a while and um uh, yeah before I get back start back at school um but I'm just working right now just with a couple of my other running friends who are going off to UCLA so cool and what drew you to the US um well I mean it's quite standard for runners to go there now I think there's like nearly every runner in New Zealand um, is going over to the US and it's it's just the whole cultural, the experience is just so cool because in New Zealand, we don't have anything like this where you have your whole team that you're running with and you're training with. Like over here, I train 99% of the time. I'm just by myself. So it's quite lonely. Whereas over there, you have your team and you become, they become like your best friends. 
and you get to race in races against hundreds of people rather than like 20 people <laughs> so i don't know i'm really excited for the whole experience yeah mm-hmm. so can you tell me a little bit more about your track season this year because we've been following along and you've had some some quite good performances uh, in some of the big national races so what, what have been your priorities with the track running at the moment yeah, I was actually just reflecting on this the other day. I didn't realize how um, well of a season I'd run. Um, I started off the end of last year. I kind of took a break from running. I was just had tired myself out. I'd been training so hard and I was just really mentally exhausted. So I took a bit of a break over the summer and then I came back in and it was racing season, which I find a lot more fun because um, it's a lot less training, less like distance you're having to run in between um, trainings because you have racing to prepare for every, every week, you know, I'm racing once or twice every week. So it's also really rewarding racing. So at the end of last year, I had two really bad runs and I was really upset um, because I'd been training so hard. And then when I came back, I used immediately did a three K at the national, yeah, the national 3K and came second and that was an open woman's and ran a huge PB. So it's just getting that confidence back that really helped me and then that's just driven me through the whole rest of the season. So I've tried running a mile for the first time and an 800 for the first time, which I've never done and I was really happy with my times. And finally, um, the other week, last week, I think, I ran a 1500 PB. So everything's been going really well, actually. Yeah. Are you happy to share some of the times that you've run this season? Yeah. Um, my 3K time was 9.30.09, so um, just over 9.30. And then my mile time was 4.40 and my 800 time was 2.11.13 and my 1500 time was 4.23. But I'm trying again uh, next week to hopefully go close to the 4.20. For the wow. last race of the season, actually, yeah. Yeah, they're incredible times. And how do they stack up with the other uh, top junior girls' times that we've seen in New Zealand athletics over the, the last years? Yeah, my 1,503K are the fastest times in um, under oh. 20s. And um, my 800 time was probably around like, I don't know, like third or fourth or something. And my mile time, I think, is number one as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, incredible. Yeah. Cool. So I, I also, qualified for the under 20 worlds for the 15 and three, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'll go yet. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I also heard that you're going to spend some time in Europe this year for orienteering. What are your plans? So yes. Far? Yeah. You plan to fly out on April the 30th, which is really exciting. It's quite soon. It's like a month away. Um, and I will be firstly going over to Tia Miller in Sweden and I'm staying with a family before then and then I'm competing for their club and then I'm hoping to go to a training camp, one of the WOC training camps and then there's some selection races after and then um, hopefully World Cup round one in Sweden and then just continuing on basically every competition there is on, I'm going to be trying to attend. Uh, I'm so, so excited and but a little bit scared, but also mostly excited. And I'm really, um, it'll be really great when all the Kiwis also come over for all the competitions too. 
yeah, hopefully some other people will join you at some point on your big trip. I think what I enjoyed the most about those early trips that I did when I was a junior was having less pressure and being able to enter every race that I could possibly find and not worry if I got too tired. Whereas some of these later trips we've had to be a bit more constrained and just focus on walk and try not to do too many other things. Um, but I think it's, yeah, you're in a really great position to jam as many races as you can into those months. And yeah, the experience will be so good for your orienteering, getting thrown into new terrain. So walkers all sprints. What's the World Cup that you're doing? Are they, are That's you just also doing mostly sprints? sprints. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's a sprint relay in that, um, that, that there's a team for, I think. And um, the, yeah, then I think it's like a couple more sprints. It's, it's sprint focused, definitely. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you'll be absent from a lot of the New Zealand season over the next few years then. Do you, have you got any timeline on um, how long your course of the US will take and when you might be back in New Zealand for, is there a part of the year where you'll be on holiday and so you can come back? Yeah, unfortunately I don't get too many breaks actually because, well, the US degree is four years long and um, I have a break in the winter time of a New Zealand summer. I have a short break and I'll probably come back to New Zealand for that for Christmas time. But then um, there's not much orienteering going on then though in New Zealand. Um, And then over my summer break, which is the European summer, um, my family and I would hope to be orienteering overseas. So I don't know if I'll come back to New Zealand for much actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I hope to keep orienteering in the US as well because um, Boston has um, quite a lot of events on actually like nearly every weekend and they're really close all nearby. And I've looked up, if there was any scary things I need to be like, you know, that can win the bush, but it looks like it's going to be all right actually in Boston. And um, yeah, it's there's some people at Harvard that orienteer. So yeah, it looks pretty good. Cool. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um... I think you're, you're, you can also focus a lot on the running, which, of course, will fall back onto your orienteering performance as well, I'm sure. So it's not like you're neglecting orienteering uh, while you're there. And I think you'll get a taste when you're in Europe for just how fast the top um, few elite athletes are. And then you'll get a good gauge for uh, how many seconds you need to shave off your times to be uh, in line with the top orienteers. So, yeah, I, I think... The, you, yeah, you should be able to see like a, a really clear plan. At least I'm optimistic that you'll see a really clear plan of how you can get um, to, closer to some clearer walk performances if you're still uh, interested in doing walk in future years. Um, I'm, I'm going to Vancouver actually for um, most of next year. So um, I, was oh, also, really? I was also checking on what scary things I have to be aware of. But I did find, <laughs> I did find that... <laughs> There are some things I have to be aware of. There's um, beers if you go too far away from the centre of town. So, yeah, it's funny. Oh, yeah, Canada's coming. a bit more scary. There's grizzly bears there. There's only black bears in where I'm going in Massachusetts, which they don't really hurt. They kill, like, one person a year. Um, but grizzly bears are scary. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fairly, fairly concerned about that, especially with the trail and mountain running where you can go fairly far away from, from the city. Um, and yeah, I haven't really got my head around that yet. It's funny coming from New yeah. Zealand where we don't have anything to think about. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah well it sounds like you've got a lot of really exciting stuff lined up and there's a lot of us who are looking forward to um seeing how you go in your um first first time at walk and things like that overseas so good luck thanks is this the second episode in a row that we get to bring up your your track times tom yeah yep definitely not up to scratch definitely not up to scratch there's some super fast times that she's running there it's really impressive um and I think we, we're kind of seeing that flow through to some of the results in sprint races of late. Um, modern sprint orienteering requires some pace to do really well. And clearly she's got that in spades. Yeah, it will be really interesting to see uh, what kind of uh, where she comes in in an elite field overseas, just uh, what that track speed gets you. And yeah, it kind of reminds me a, a little bit of uh, Yannick Mikels from from Belgium, who uh, certainly had these track times that was uh, miles ahead of, or for a while there was, was miles ahead of the, the rest of the field. Um, and yeah, it was just like consistently getting close to the top, um, not as much at the top as pure running speed would suggest. So there's definitely some uh, other elements coming into the sprint orienteering. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, you, you know when you can start with that level of speed that if you have a good race, then uh, you can you can be the best. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to following Penelope over the years ahead. Yeah, definitely. I, I think as well it's going to pose some interesting selection conundrums for um, New Zealand orienteering. If you look at Yannick and his results, especially when he was earlier in his, um, I guess, speeding up phase as a becoming a a kind of middle distance, upper middle distance runner. He was pretty erratic with his sprint results, but with time, he's just sort of like evened out around that kind of top five in the world kind of point. It'd be interesting to see if Penelope gets faster, maybe not doing as much orienteering, to see what happens with um, her sprint results and also what that means for how does New Zealand choose orienteers for world champs and the like. Um, a runner in America, running in American fields, how do we even compare that to New Zealand? Later problem, good problem to have, but mm -hmm. potentially challenging. Yeah. Um, Technique-wise, so you kind of touched in the talk there a little bit on knockout sprints, and um, we've just had that really cool National Sprint League race down in the Manawatu, which had a range of courses. And that brings us to maybe some lesser talked about elements of not just sprint orienteering, but all orienteering. And that's something we could loosely call map admin. What would you, do you want to define that a little bit for us, Gene? What do you class as your kind of map admin skills? Yeah. So this is my, my personal take. I would describe map admin as all of the parts of executing an orienteering race that are not navigation. So there's nothing to do with reading the contours and reading the vegetation of the map. It's not to do with um, interpreting the control descriptions that you might have on your arm or on the map to show exactly where the flag is placed. It's not to do with route choice. So what's left? Well, there's all this stuff about uh, the number and all the pink stuff on, on the map, actually. So going to the right control, not missing out controls, uh, not misaligning the leg lines on the map and navigating to the wrong control. There's a bunch of stuff that is required and is almost never even a conscious thought, but suddenly yes, it goes it, wrong. It sounds really simple, right? Like we can all count 
theoretically. <laughs> so these skills sound really simple. Yeah. Can you go from five to six to seven to eight? Super, super easy things to do when you're not under um, uh, lactic acid load. You're not trying to fill your brain with all these complex navigation decisions and trying to think multiple controls ahead, essentially creating the perfect storm for confusing yourself about was I going to control 13 and was that number 127 or was it 129 and was it the tree or the um, fence corner? You know, there's these things sound super simple, which is probably why we don't focus on them. But many a orienteer will have a story from over the years where they have navigated to the wrong control. I know I mispunched in the Jaywalk A final in Australia on a probably one of my best ever runs when I ran straight past the control because I made a map administration error. Um, you've got examples of it too, I'm sure. Should we have a look at a map and just try and um, first just define the problem a little bit more, give with an example, and then we'll talk about some things that you can do to help um, mitigate the risks of a map administration error. Yep. So let's just throw the viewer into a fairly complicated map here. But as I was saying, these map admin areas are not about the complexity of the map. Although if there's a lot of navigation going on, I think it increases the chance of a map admin error. And so the challenges I see in this particular leg coming up is that you've got a map flip in an area that requires a lot of navigation. You've also got a lot of dark colors on the map. You've got the purple, and all these black lines. So there's this inefficiency coming up from these like extra tasks that have to be done on top of just pure navigation. And as soon as you get this map flip, this is what you're going to see on, on the other side. You've got uh, a, a, a fairly detailed leg straight to number 14. And then you've got this passageway, which is fairly uncommon. So there's all this mental overhead and the risks here of uh, not planning ahead enough and ending up like missing number 14 completely because you're too busy. You maybe you don't even see it on the map because there's a lot of black lines going on there. Maybe you, can you just jump up to the, can, can you just jump up to the control descriptions as well? We can just see how much more complicated it looks. I think they're in the top left. Um, so kind of like what you're alluding to there is that we have uh, high areas of high cognitive load are places where a map administration error can happen, where we can make an error on those fundamental skills of counting and keeping track of where we are. Yep. It's not that you missed the attack point. It's not that the root choice was bad. It's this that you fell, fell apart at something far more fundamental, like didn't even see the control on the map or mm. saw it, but then forgot about it straight away because you were trying to work out the passageway. The example you gave of missing 14 here is, again, the control descriptions could lead you into it. While we look at this and it looks very clear at the top that there's a, if you, if you scroll up just a touch, we can see that 14 is at the top of the descriptions after the start. We can also see that it's got the follow tapes 60 meters line and then control 15. In your rush, especially if you imagine you're looking, you've got one to 13 on your arm as well, you could quite easily jump to, I need to find the control after the map flip which is going to be misinterpreted as the 60 meters. I'm going to number 15, which is 40. And they're kind of on a straight line as well. You could inadvertently start navigating to 15 and miss 14. Absolutely. And this is the kind of thing that I've done in the past. And I think anyone who's done 
a number of seasons in orienteering has surely done something like this, but they've gone straight from the start triangle to 15. Okay. So first, before we jump onto new examples, let's just talk a little bit about the problem. So we've said uh, map admin error is something which isn't related to the navigation per se. It's more about the pink stuff. It's keeping track of the crossings, the control numbers, all of that sort of thing. Some of the risk factors for making an administration error are, uh, first of all, there's like the cognitive factors. So that's, am I in a really complex part of the map? Am I trying to process loads of things and potentially overloading my brain? Another factor can be course factors. So are there lots of crossings close to the controls or controls that are set on a straight line? Those are things which can increase the risk of a map admin error as well. Um, do we have another example? Yeah, yeah. here we go. So, so this was... This yeah. is another one. So this is talking to what we talked about. There's... Um, many controls it's a complex area there are a lot of a lot of controls with very similar numbers very close together this is a high risk zone for an admin error talk us through what happened yep absolutely high risk so i had um, was having a pretty good race i was racing hard though and i was coming through the end of the course number 14 i just had to get 15 and go straight through to the pivot and finish easy peasy but as you can see this pivot has a lot of lines coming out of it and also my number 15 so both my last two really difficult controls 15 and 16 had uh, pivots at them and i spent the whole time from 14 to 15 trying to confirm what leg i was supposed to be doing and checking that i hadn't mistaken any of the numbers that i hadn't got any of the wrong uh, leg lines and in doing so i ran right past 15. I was too busy sussing what on earth was going on at 16. And I ended up, I'll show you in a second, my route was actually just came straight through here, didn't really go that close to 15, and was sailing off to 16 before I realized, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I missed, I missed the number here, what's going on? Like complete panic because it's a mass start. And I knew Curtis was, you know, could have been seconds behind me. I didn't know where he was because we're coming into a pivot. And so, like, my heart's pounding and my head's just, spinning and yeah fortunately i realized i just missed 15 and had to go back and get it but that would have been a classic admin era i knew to get it and prior to you know just looking at my map to refold it coming into 15 i i intended to get it i just forgot like five seconds before punching the control it was bizarre but it happens so what can we do to try and avoid these map admin errors i mean an obvious thing we can do is we can slow down. We can try and do less cognitive overload, but that's not really what we're trying to achieve in orienteering. We're trying to go as fast as we can. So what else can we do? Yeah, and therein uh, lies the trade-off of these, these map admin errors. Um, because it's not like a conscious thing, it's very hard to prevent against it other than staying as concentrated as possible and slowing down. So like, I really wish I had a better answer for these. Um, there are some, some tips and tricks like having a really explicit process in your head that you can execute um, every time. But obviously when the map admin mistake happens, it's happening in the context of you jumping, your brain jumping around and forgetting about the process in the first place. So practicing a good process not going too fast but of course that's a direct trade-off with your your speed so mm. yeah what, what, what are your thoughts tom i don't have um really a, a, a solution that will just like end these kinds of problems 
No, so I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a tricky one. As with all things in orienteering, as you go faster, there's a lot of compromise. I think probably your comment around having a really solid process for every league is really important. Over the last year or so, when we've been talking about an orienteering process, we've been focusing on direction, simplification, knowing where you're going. We haven't explicitly been stating the importance of the control description and the control you're heading to next as part of that initial plan in a league. So the ARC, the trying to simplify your leagues in terms of attack point, route choice, and then control. So in a sprint race or a relay where these errors are most likely to happen, it's about making sure that you're not chopping that last little bit of the league plan out, that you're actually looking, okay, I'm going, I'm at three. Well, that's fresh in your mind. I'm going to four. It looks like it's on a tree. Cross-referencing that with your control description. And when you get to four, repeating that process. So just being really familiar with that complete league plan yeah, rather complete than... complete and thorough, thorough league plan. Yeah. Yeah. Which feels clunky to start with, but if you practice it more and more, it gets faster. I think using your control descriptions as well is important. They can be a bit of a double-edged sword. You can try and think two or three controls ahead and we're trying to remember I'm going to control five, which is number 175, and then I'm going to six, which is 182. It's a surefire way to get cognitive overload. But it's maybe a case of identifying these high-risk zones and just pairing that back a little so you're only thinking about the next control. And instead of planning the specifics of the entire next leg you're focusing much more on the leg you're on at the moment and running that full plan cross-referencing with your control description punching their control just allowing a second for the next leg to make sure that you are not overloading your brain but that's all yeah. a trade-off right? all that stuff is like it all sounds well and good in theory but it's um going to be slightly different for everybody and it's also with everything especially in sprint orienteering it's a risk benefit calculation yep that sounds right to me one thing that i do is i check the number on the control first and then pull it back to the description so it's not something that i have to remember all the time um, if there's a lot of time then yeah i might check in advance but something like a middle distance where there's often not enough time and remembering something extra in my head is a risk then i will look at the number on the top of the control and then just cross-reference with the um descriptions on the way out of the control that that's one way that i've found uh, helps but that has a fatal flaw as i think i will uh, show in in this next example so uh, this is the map from uh, the cutoff or relay uh, last weekend and uh, we had two mispunches on the same control on different courses and fortunately it wasn't me, but it was uh, yeah, runners in the Taranaki and Auckland orienteering uh, team both uh, managed to miss number 19, miss control number 19, got 17, 18, 20. Um, but they got to the finish and were like, no, I, I definitely punched it and I checked all my numbers. But what had actually happened, and this is very coincidental that it happened to two people on the same night, is the orienteers on those courses punched 18, mucked up 19, hit 18 again, punched 18 a second time, checked the number, yep. Didn't even recognize that it was the same control that they'd already been to because it was already nighttime. And then went straight after 20 thinking they'd already got 19, 
where they'd actually just gone like 17, 18, 18, 20. And <laughs> that's a trap I've also done once in the past. Um, it requires you to also make uh, a technical mistake and then an admin mistake in a row. But it's the kind of thing that sneaks under the radar and you get to the finish adamant that you punched it, also adamant that you checked all your numbers. But if you're doing this uh, like retrospective checking where you check the number on the top and then you look for it in the descriptions, you're not going to pick up that it was the wrong the wrong number because mm. you're just looking mm. for looking for the code. So absolutely. Ah, what a sneaky one. Yeah. So to wrap up that little piece, I guess we could say admin errors as a group cover off the things that aren't technically navigation, but are more about the pink stuff on the map, miscounting, misidentifying, getting confused by run-throughs. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the factors that might predispose to them include um, map factors, so lots of controls close together, legs which are almost straight with a control in the middle, and then there's yep. also like runner factors. So how gassed are you? Are you coming to this section of very complicated controls on like swimming in lactic acid? And how are you scheduling all of the thoughts in your brain? Are you cognitively overloading yourself and doing many things simultaneously? Um, we mentioned some possible tactics to minimize this. So one is identifying the risk when it's there. And the other things you could do is having a rock solid plan for completely executing the leg and not shortcutting before you leave the previous control. Sounds good. Yep. I think that's the best you can do. Practice. Yep. Nice. Alrighty. So what about news this month? What have we, what have we got? Yeah. Well, we're jumping back to your big week. Uh, this is a photo of you guys finishing the seven day race looks like a matter of minutes <laughs> ahead of another team how was that final stage up the beach were you guys under the hammer yeah well it wasn't, wasn't really navigation to be honest it was just uh get out of the kayak ride the bikes across the bridge and then keep the sea on your right was pretty much the plan uh but no it was we were pretty fired up to try and get third place ahead of top sport um we with a dark zone, we started the paddle basically to get well, two thirds of the way through the paddle together. And then we were a short bike ride of about three Ks across a bridge and then into 16, 17 Ks on the beach. Um, we just kind of hit it from the start and just started running straight off the bat and didn't stop. I didn't look back for a very long time because I didn't really want to know where the others were. Um, but yeah, I don't know where the body, where that run came from, but everyone uh, moved pretty well and knocked back gels and just kept going it was cool i think we were all four of us were all in and it showed in how well we moved along that beach i think all the like creaking tendons and buggered feet uh just got pushed out of the way by some adrenaline so no it was great yeah amazing um i also caught up with uh the team who got fifth place uh the secret billionaires um that was a really enjoyable conversation and you can glean so much more from talking to them than we ever could from watching the GPS tracking. So uh, if you're, if you're interested in seeing the antics that the God's own, the top God's own teams get up to, especially over a seven day race like this, then uh, definitely check out um, the podcast that I did, which has uh, some GPS and uh, a video of the whole thing. So 
um, there's been pretty good reception to that one. So obviously people were finding it interesting and or useful. Yeah, I had, I had a watch. It was real good because we saw the Secret Billionaires a few times out on course, uh, kind of a wee bit back and forth with them. And you have this little bubble thing going on, I guess, when you're racing of just the four of you. And depending on your frame of mind, you can feel like you're going much slower or much faster than other teams. Um, but it was really interesting to get a kind of more of a blow-by-blow insight into how another team was racing and how their race was going and um, how they made their way through the same stages that we did. Um, it was, uh, yeah, a good talk. Also great to hear um, some of their uh, navigation choices as well. And Reese talks really well about that. Yeah, he does. He was uh, really impressive. Um, I also did some night navigation. Uh, not only the God Zone is out there at nighttime, uh, so was I. So I did the Kartopo annual relay running from yep. northwest, of course. Uh, yeah. How much do you like this uh, this terrain in Toho? Oh, it's cool. I mean, we use these maps for Kartopo like relatively frequently used, but even still, they're still really challenging. I think they're a really good mix of complicated contour detail and an array of point features. Because looking at this map, you think, oh, there's so many trees. You can just tell where the trees are and the creeks and everything. But there's so many of them that they're almost useless. Um, it's a bit like rock terrain with trees instead. So I think you have to rely a lot more on the contours underneath it, which makes it terrain that looks much more challenging than it than the map appears at first sight. Add it into the fact that it's nighttime. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is the perfect terrain for nighttime. At daytime, it can be quite easy when you, you mm. when you get the, the long long view across the valley and you can see where you're going. Uh, it's might as well be forest at nighttime. You can't see across the valley. There's so many um, depressions and, and reentrants that you're always below the ground anyway. So whether it was daytime or nighttime, you can't really see out. So it's very cool, and I will always keep coming back in, any chance I get to to orienteering in this terrain. Add in a bit of uh, steam from the geothermal stuff if we're on one of the maps which has the like geothermal pipelines on it. You know, it can be pretty disorienting orienteering to be running around in the middle of the night on quite what feels like quite complicated terrain yeah. with steam and pipelines crisscrossing everywhere. It's, um, yeah, definitely worth a look, this event. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pretty long running now. Must be getting... 30 years, maybe? Yeah, the 30th anniversary may have been last year or the year before or something like that. Um, Pretty cool. Yeah, and this was quite quite a long, uh, a longer version. Uh, I was mm. out there for one hour, which was really nice. I, I like that. It was a touch longer than, than usual, and we all finished, uh, finished a bit later. Um, I had some pretty average moments. Like, I was obviously very rusty at the start, screwing up number two. Number one and two were a bit rough. But then I had some really good moments, seven to nine, then stuffed it up on number 10 again with pretty much an, always an admin error at number 10. Uh, I thought I was somewhere else. Um, it was just very confusing. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a bit rough uh, in places, but a good reminder um, just to keep everything keep everything together. Mm. Um, now, you mentioned Northwest. You're running for Northwest. Northwest had a big weekend of orienteering this weekend just gone. Yeah, they did. Uh, this is from course one at uh, a brand new map for us, a very old map that used to be called uh, Wilson Road. 
uh, now has a, a new name that escapes me right now, but it's a good mix of hills and sand dunes, which is, uh, there's a few terrains that we have north of Auckland that have this mix. And now we have a new one. It's not a huge area, but it was long enough for a one hour course with a map flip, some good mixes of visibility, some really, really steep hills to make sure that you get your route choices correct. Mm. Looks great. I, I, I feel like I really missed out on this one. I think if you were to have um, a terrain type for each of the three Auckland clubs, I think you'd have counties with their um, mixed sand dune, a little bit of forest that they have on the Afitu Peninsula. Auckland, you'd have your like pancake flat kind of celebre, like really flat kind of... Yeah, like the classic uh, Woodhill South stuff. Coast Road, was... Woodhill South yeah. stuff. <laughs> but I reckon for Northwest, you have these kind of like mixed maps which pulpit rocks kind of the same seems like there's tracks there's grunty areas there's detailed areas and then down in the southwestern part of the map there's that green valley um which to me just that's like quintessential kind of northwest kind of map right there with the detail and low pines and that sort of thing so yeah, yeah. really cool map yeah it definitely reminds me a lot of slater road and wainiki mm. has some some patches like this also so yeah. it, it's like it seems kind of easy because there's a lot of trails, but it's amazing how much you get pushed around when you're trying to take these tight, tight turns and you're losing your sense of direction if you're pushing it at a high speed, which is really important for Europe, I think. It's the kind of stuff yeah. we don't practice so much in the flatter areas of Woodhill Forest. So yeah, yeah. super cool. Uh, here's a few pictures. So this is mixed. This is not Woodhill. This is not what we're used to. So this is great to see different, um, different types of forest. There was also a race on the Saturday and the Sunday. So uh, back to some classic uh, Whittle stuff on the Sunday there. So very cool to see uh, two races pulled off uh, in, in the thick of, of the COVID wave. Case numbers are still pretty high at the moment. And we had a really good plan and uh, kept yeah, start blocks separate and everyone had, had a good chance to go orienteering. So nice. Really cool. Yeah, really cool. Um, they've been orienteering in Europe as well, but this time on snow. <laughs> yeah. So more, more ski orienteering news. They had the world ski orienteering champs uh, actually over uh, the recent days. Um, you might remember the name Anna Olvenson. She was in Auckland for a year uh, a few years, a few years back, uh, and she was really good at the uh, junior junior world scoring tearing championships, and has herself a gold medal at uh, senior level now in the sprint relay. And this is a two person relay, and they go up three times, so it's actually quite a different format. Uh, here is uh, what the, um, the the courses look like. So this, it's quite a similar loop three times. And as you might see from the results there, they're only out for six and a half minutes. <laughs> so it's yeah. like full VO2 max effort uh, on, on this stuff. Yeah, that's hectic. Yeah, just lapping it out real hard. So that's an interesting format. Not something that we've really seen for Forest Orienteering to do like a two-person relay with six legs in total. It's quite different. Uh, it sure is. It's also hard to know. I mean, not being you and I, not being cross country skiers, it's also hard to know 
what the trade-offs are with some of the route choices. Is it just a straight as great sort of situation or do you really want to get on those high, high um, those wider ski trails? What about tight turns? How easy is it to make a tight turn on a um, cross-country skis? Yeah, questions that I have also. Maybe you could get a cross-country skier that we can interview to ask these things. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly more questions and answers at the moment. Uh, this is uh, the, the middle distance race, which was also held uh, on uh, similar terrain. This is in Finland, quite far north in Finland also. Mm -hmm. The uh, contours and vegetation are really by the by for this map. It's pretty smooth, pretty smooth going, really just about the trails. Reminds me very much of some mountain bike orienteering, but in like a very dense grid, very mm. dense network of, of trails, right? The mountain bike trails tend to go like a little bit longer before there's another junction, whereas this is looks really quite cool, actually. A lot of decisions to be made, a lot of things to get wrong if you miss, miss a junction. So, mm. yeah, interesting stuff. Indeed. Um, and New Zealand might have runners going to Europe. This, well, hopefully we'll have runners going to Europe this year with yep. Junior World Champs in Portugal and yeah, WOC in Denmark. Yeah. So once the ski orienteering season wraps up, it is all go for forest and sprint. So uh, New Zealand is looking at sending a team to JWOC for the first time in two years. And um, the applications for the uh, JWOC and WOC management are open. So if you're interested in um, putting your name forward and helping out, then uh, I think that's something really good to do. There has been some tricky situations over the past few years where the coach and manager for JWOC have been undersubscribed and we've been really fortunate to um, pull, pull together with some help from overseas to get a managing team for, and a, yeah, managing for the team. So um, mm. we, yeah, we really want as many people putting their names forward uh, as possible just to avoid that situation occurring again. That was a tricky one. Um, Jay Walker walk out the only one, World Masters this year in Italy. Some interesting looking terrain and Puglia. That's right. This is the sprint, sprint map. Uh, looks pretty, pretty dramatic. Uh, Very dramatic. View from there. So, yeah, that looks, looks cool. This is what the map looks like. You've got um, this mix of like very, <laughs> very gritty buildings mm. mixed in with this like very classic uh, Italian like hillside town. Yeah, tight stairways, route choices, climb versus direct line. Yeah, wow, spectacular. That looks like very exciting. I must say Italy over the last decade with their various races they've had always managed to find wonderful terrain. Uh, looks looks pretty good for a holiday also. <laughs> it's all pretty nice. I don't think I'm 35 as Masters, right? Maybe I'm, I'm not far off, you know. Yeah. This is the middle um, yeah. middle distance terrain here. Incredible uh, cast terrain. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, lots of depressions. Yeah, all of a similar size as well. So, uh, yeah, it can become quite tricky. Uh, when you're trying to pick off pick off all these one and two contour depressions, getting yourself curved curved around off your bearing because you're, you're getting refracted by the the hole by the depression, so 
Amazing. Great yeah. train. Yeah, world masters. Let's keep an eye out for maps later in the year. Mm-hmm. Now, close to home, nationals, Easter. It's been a yeah. lot of teasing of also some cast terrain up on Canaan Downs. Um, sounds like Nelson Orienteering Club are all go for what will be four big days of orienteering. Yeah, so cast terrain is something that I haven't been on very often and Canaan Downs uh, west of Nelson is one of the only places. I don't know where else there is cast terrain in New Zealand. There's some stuff west of Hamilton, yeah. South Waikato, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so uh, this is pretty cool. I'm really looking forward to to this uh, long distance, especially uh, on this terrain. And we've got some photos also. Did you race nationals last time it was on Canaan Downs? No, I didn't. You would have been about nine, probably. (laughs) No, I wasn't that young. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think I was still at high school. And M10, you would have been been a bit older than that, I think. Um, I remember that I raced, I think that was one of my... Oh, it's probably still in juniors, I think. I can't remember. It was a long time. It was maybe 2006. Yeah, it's probably still juniors. Um, some beach forest that's incredible. I know the maps from that year had some strange distortion happening. I mean, generally they're very good, but there was a couple of hillsides where you were like, what is going on here? There's some, someone's entered some sort of portal when they've mapped this. Um, yeah, and I hate being overly been... critical of, of mappers because... They are the backbone of our sport. Absolutely. We don't want to put them off, but sometimes you're like... Difficult area to map. I mean, it was cool. (laughs) There was some... I mean, for the most part, the map was amazing. And it's super tricky to map in this beach forest with so much detail. I mean, you can see in this little map snippet here, how do you even fit all of this detail onto the map? Um, And the map was was awesome fun. But I, I mean, maybe it's just me. Maybe I was... My terrible orienteering was a problem. It's not you, Tom. <laughs> I've been there since as, as a fully qualified orienteer, not just as a kid. And yeah, we were there for a training camp actually a few years ago. And in a tr- training exercise, you had time to slow down and like really try to get things right. And there was some moments when I realized there was there was nothing I could do <laughs> to get this next control. Like that being I said, just went on a compass Nelson and like have- ignored everything until I like, managed to find a flag and was like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is, it's a bit Love old. If that old, Nelson old would be Nelson a kind re- way to say it. Nelson have remapped it. I understand Michael Croxford, I think, has been up there and wrestled it into shape. Um, we actually, last time we went through, Cannon Downs was on Kaharangi 500. We and I did a big bike packing ride and I ran into Michael Croxford up at the top there. So, um, yeah, very cool area. Go to Nationals. I sadly can't. I've got work commitments, um, but yeah, wishing I was there. It'd be great fun. Yeah, there's also two sprints on the uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, and a knockout sprint uh, on one of those days as well for the Keen Beans who need to get a bit more uh, experience with this knockout sprint stuff. So, and do you have a couple pictures to... for more pages with pictures of terrain? Because I think Nelson yeah. have done a pretty good job of promoting it. Yeah, I jump onto their yeah, website yeah. and you've got some, some good pictures here of uh, some, of, some of the terrain. I wanted to uh, just zoom in on the sprint terrain here. Classic campus stuff. Everyone knows how to do this. Uh, this is our jam as, as Kiwis, these school campus maps. So it's going to be all go for the uh, sprint. 
and this is what the beach forest looks like. So I think most of the Cannon Downs map is open, but uh, there is a decent amount in the beach forest as well. And who knows what the new, if there's new mapped areas that are outside of the old map. Mm. The uh, old map was really good because it seemed to like the areas that were well mapped were the white stuff. And the further you got out into the green, you kind of got into the like, into the, uh, where the dragons live kind of thing. But maybe they've matched more of that now because it was good. It is travelable. It's just a little bit, a little bit of things to cut your vision down. Um, yeah, it cuts down your vision. Maps. It pushes you around a bit. Um, yep. You can see some of the branches on the ground. And then even where the leaves are, there's just a lot of rotting material under the leaves and under the moss. It's very soft. And heavy terrain, as they say. It, yeah, it's, it's very heavy. You've got all these young bushes on the ground, so you need to lift, lift your legs high. Um, it's it's tough terrain in the beach forest, super fast on, on the grass in the farmed areas, and then really tough going uh, in the beach forest. So I'm looking forward to this long distance uh, with, with that kind of contrast. Cool. And then you've got something about um, Mog yeah. getting... Mogden on the, on the, the media. Um, he did an interview with uh, Fresh FM. Uh, this is kind of uh, Nelson, Northern South Island radio station, I believe, and talks all about orienteering and this national championships that's coming up. And yeah, I was just having a listen then. And it's just super cool just to get some exposure to the sport and get someone like Matt to explain it clearly, I think, um, not, not with 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 no like approximations about like what we're doing not kind of resorting to um what people expect orienteering to be uh, and yeah I, I really love that um that yeah someone like matt could, could be the, the spokesperson so really looking forward to uh, this national championships and especially with the organizing crew like uh, matt ogden michael croxford and nathan fave uh, a lot of experience uh, within those Georgia guys. Whitler's, Georgia Whitler's in there as well. Mm. So one of the, Georgia Whitler's in there as a setter or a controller as well. There's some, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, maybe I need to really try and see if I can get work moved, but I think it's <laughs> going to be tricky. Um, anyway, last of all in news is with international travel. Yeah. I thought this was an interesting one. So IOF are pushing for, I guess, a, a more collective international orienteering community and they have added a place where you can register uh, as a host family so that other orienteers can travel to your country and find an easier place to stay now this is something that happens all the time anyway but you have to know somebody and it's yeah it's pretty hit and miss like if you have the right network, then you can find places to stay anywhere in the world. But if you don't, um, maybe you just don't know anyone from a certain country, then uh, it can be a bit hard. So this is a way to create um, a register where you can um, find a host family very easily and you can register that you have a spare room and are happy to um, host someone who may be traveling. Maybe they're spending a year at a university overseas or they're just doing a one month vacation. Uh, who knows? So I'm really interested to see where this goes because that's been something I really appreciate as a New Zealander traveling to Europe to race is being able to stay with people. And I mean, it's the amount of money that it's, it's saved me and the amount of friendships that I've made from staying with people 
uh, is yeah. really important to me. So I'm really happy that um, IOF acknowledged the importance of this and uh, helping to make the experience more seamless. Hey, maybe it's a way to find a mapper for a project or something, something you have happening down here. Maybe you could, because I know historically that used to happen. They used to get Finnish and Swedish mappers would come up for a, a holiday and map some terrain years mm -hmm. and years ago. Yep, and possibly be hosted as well. So, uh, yep, I think this is really interesting and really good for, for our juniors as well to get people to come over here and share the experiences of orienteering in their home country so that we can learn from it because different places require different styles of orienteering. And sometimes mm. I feel like we don't get enough experience at a range of terrains. And I feel for Australians a lot as well. They've got a lot of quite similar terrain in Australia and are probably missing out on, on a lot of the variation that uh, Europe offers. So mm. it's cool. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky when I was my early late teens early 20s i went to kongsberg in norway for three months and the club kongsberg orienteering club have they had like a couple of swiss a bulgarian and me and every year they had overseas runners who came and stayed with families in the town partly to expose the younger club members to other cultures but also because the orienteering was really good there and they just liked having other level runners it was great it's the way to do two meal or nuclear with a Norwegian, Swedish, or Finnish club because they organise everything for you. So, I'll be interested to see which club um, Penelope's running for um, when she goes there. Yeah. Um, so maybe this IOF uh, in, in, um, initiative will help make that connection easier for New Zealanders. Mm -hmm. Should we close it up there just with a kind of parting thought for the month? Um, we've talked a bit about Canaan Downs. It's been used for nationals before. It's being used again. What Jane would be one of your? What would be your most memorable? nationals new zealand nationals mm. map that you've run on mm. yeah so the the memorable ones yeah definitely the unique ones and possibly the most physically hard ones you remember uh also as as standing out the first one that jumps up to me now is actually nelson again last time nationals were there big bush yeah this is also interesting big bush because i made a massive map admin error on on this course there were two two long legs that were very parallel like perfectly parallel on the map which is another another cause of map admin error not just legs in the straight line but two different legs that are very parallel they were the same length and they were almost the same route choice as well but one was in the opposite direction later on in the course and i started navigating on one leg and then my brain switched over to navigating the other leg and i map went off to like I was supposed to go to control six. I went to control 14, started doing like the loop in the wrong order before I realized that was like 10, 12 minutes lost or something. And my psychology just like blowing because I was, I was going for, for the win for sure. And I was in the lead at, at the time. I knew my form was really good and like, I just couldn't recover emotionally from, from that. I think I even need so that. So that's very, so Big Bush is Sinanid. It's across the road from Sinanid. It's a big slope of beach forest with uh, kind of some flats with some complicated manuka scrub, um, some river terraces where it joins into teetotal flat. Um, but basically it's grunty, complex slope orienteering. Um, yeah, with lovers, low like it's you know, a lot of medium and light green uh, on the yeah. app. So yeah, it's funny that those really tough ones are really quite 
memorable. They really stick with you. So that's that's that one's, yeah. up, that one's up there for me too, Big Bush. I was I was going to say for me, I'd have to say it would be Waianiki up in uh, North Woodhill. Um, it's like Woodhill with a twist. Um, you've got those incredible bits of sand dune with that really intricate detail. You've got the steep slope orienteering with a big green area and then you've also got the like lightning fast white forest i think it's just like the ultimate showcase of woodhill mm, i remember you passing me in that race i wasn't terribly fit that year and you came through <laughs> and promptly dropped me up the hill i'm sure you've returned the favor since yeah yeah anyway oh, great uh, great chat let's um let's reconvene next month hey yeah See you next month. We'll have some good race reporting to to do by then, I think. Sweet. Cool. Thanks, Jane. See ya. See ya. If you liked the show, please support it by sharing this podcast with one person who would benefit from it. The best place to find more content like this is at genebeverage.nz, where you can find years of training blogs, race reports, podcasts, and coaching videos. If you don't want to miss future episodes, I recommend subscribing to my newsletter by visiting genebeverage.nz or by following on social media, Perfect Flow on Facebook and Gene Beverage on Instagram. For Q&A, send messages to nav at perfectflow.nz.